Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Sound Off on School Safety, presented by Safe and Sound Schools. I am your host, Alyssa Parker, co-founder and director of Outreach for Safe and Sound. I would like to take a minute to thank our premier partners of this year's virtual National Summit on School Safety, Navigate 360, for providing this webinar as part of their support of this year's virtual summit, October 7th through 9th. We have an exciting show for you today. With our summit only weeks away, I thought it would be fun to give you a sneak peek into what you will be seeing next month at our summit. Today, we will be talking with Clayton Douglas, Dr. Melissa Reeves, and Molly Hutchins, three truly remarkable and inspiring presenters we will be seeing next month. With so much going on in the lives of our students today, there are many questions that arise. How have they been affected by all these changes and disruptions they've been experiencing since March? You know, they were pulled away from their peers and they have been experiencing some form of isolation and they were thrown into online schooling, which was super fun, we all know. And now some of them are walking back into the hallways of their schools with a whole new set of rules to help with physical distancing and sanitization. Despite all this being done with their safety in mind, there are inevitable consequences that we just have to be prepared for. We can't be so distracted by all the changes that we miss seeing the emotional needs of our students. My first conversation is with Clayton Douglas whose personal story about the school shooting that never happened is a cautionary yet hopeful tale of what can happen if we ignore the warning signs that a student needs help. I first met Clayton last year at a conference where we were both speaking at in California. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, I was a little bit nervous to meet him. I had been told by the event organizer that Clayton, who had never presented before, would be telling us about how he had almost committed a school shooting. And as you can imagine, my heart literally dropped. Having lost my daughter at the hands of a school shooter, this obviously invoked a strong emotional response in me. I was worried, to be honest, about how I might react towards seeing him. And I know this might sound strange, but I really didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable. I honestly felt so much appreciation for his willingness to share his story in an effort to stop things like this from happening. Can you imagine? What an incredibly difficult and brave thing to do, to get a window into that world that no one talks about. Can you imagine all the good that can come from hearing his story? I really felt like I had to understand how, as a middle schooler, he had gotten to that breaking point and what changed his path. Clayton could not have been more gracious in his interactions with me. He is a kind and wonderful person. And let me tell you, his story is so raw and honest. He paints a very unfiltered picture of what depression and isolation looks like in the mind of our youth. I found his powerful message to not only be inspiring, but incredibly empowering. Here is a short clip of Clayton sharing his story. It's complicated growing up. You've got a lot of feelings. You've got a lot of things going on in your head. You don't know how to deal with them. I'm certainly no psychiatrist. I don't know how to, to explain this, but I do know how I felt. I do know that I felt alone and I felt like there was nobody that could understand or hear me. And, and in, in reality, there was probably a lot of people around me that could understand. I just know how to communicate with them. Uh, humans need other humans. You know, we need compassion. We need love. I was lucky. I made it through. 
Clayton, those words get me every time I hear them. So powerful. So amazing. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Of course. We're so thrilled to have you here. Now, I was there the first time you told your story to an audience. And I will say the one thing that you made very clear to me is this is not an experience that you share lightly. You are very selective with when and how you share your stories with others. So I guess my question is, why did you feel like sharing your story at our summit was important? You know, I mean, obviously my story is certainly relevant. Um, I'm one of those people who kind of went through a real dark period in my life. I nearly did something horrible. And uh, I wanted to give perspective to what's going on inside of a potential shooter's head. You know, like what, what's, what's making them tick? What's making them make the decisions they make? I am fully aware that my story may not be the same as, as any other perpetrator's story, but at the same time, I've heard enough of these stories and I've heard enough of these backgrounds that it seemed to me that there were definitely crossovers between their stories and my story. Now, you know, I didn't commit the acts that they did, but I came very, very close. And I feel like there's information there that can be used to prevent another shooting. There's information there that that can give you some, some insight into finding potentially the next kid who gets a gun, the next kid who decides that he's going to do what he's going to do or she's going to do what she's going to do. And it's um, kind of interesting, though. Like, I see these dynamics right now where we're so focused on COVID that I think as we are putting out that fire, you know, it's really important to recognize that right now kids are feeling isolated. Kids are feeling depressed. Kids are feeling a lot of really strong emotions as a result of this extra burden that has been placed on all of us. And I think it's really important that we're still having these conversations like you're talking about, because right now more than ever, we need to be paying attention to our kids' mental health. And that's what yeah. I, you know, as you're saying that, that's, you know, where I see how, how relevant it is right now in this moment. But yeah, you know, I think everybody should be keeping their mental health in check, especially now. There are a lot of burdens in society. There's a lot in the world. I personally have never cried more than in the last year. Just every damn time I turn on the TV, there's something that it just gets me and I don't know what to do, you know? And so I can imagine that that's got to be something that's shared around the country. Okay. So I have to be fully transparent here and a little raw myself, you know, after the shooting at Sandy Hook, I remember being incredibly angry and wanting to know nothing about the perpetrator who took my daughter's life. He was a monster, period. And I think in many ways as a society, we don't always want to think about the complex issues that contribute to a person becoming a monster. But hearing your story has made me look deeper into myself and challenge me to ask more questions about the why. And I guess I'm curious, how has your experience changed the way you view the world? First of all, it's made me a lot less judgmental. I think, you know, for 30 some odd years, I kept this part of my life hidden. I kept it stamped down, put it in a little box and sealed it away for no one to know about. You know, I moved out to California in 98 and nobody really knows what happened in 89, you know, or 88. When you do that, you're not really being honest with yourself, obviously. You know, I would read stories and I'd hear things and I, I would, on the surface, be like, you know, very judgmental and just disgusted and angry. But 
deep down, I knew that I was almost that person. And so I had to be more honest with myself and less judgmental about things. And I think that that's important for people to understand about why you and I do present. You know, we look at our tragedies as an opportunity to educate other people. Yeah. The story that you had, the story that I experienced as well, you know, our goal in sharing it is to only help educate people on ways to do it better, ways to prevent these kinds of things from happening. So yeah, absolutely. I understand what you mean by that. And, and I kind of think too that, you know, a lot of times, you know, I think that one of the reasons that I came forth with my story was because a lot of these guys, they saved that last bullet for themselves because they don't want to deal with the consequences. But I think it's interesting to at least get their story as a, as a prevention measure. What do you hope that those who attend the summit will take away from your story? What messages do you think are the key takeaways? I think the number one thing is to pay attention to the people around you. You have to empathize with them, even if you don't like them sometimes. Be aware, you know, if there's somebody in the school, we have classes, you know, amassing is normal. Who is the person that's sort of alienated? There's always one or two or a group. Pay attention because I was going to school every day with books about guns. I would talk about some of these things to people and everybody just thought I was weird. But I, w- I, w- I had the warning signs going off all around me. Nobody noticed. What happened happened. And, uh, and it could have been a lot worse. The blame would have been on me. But, you know, there are some teachers, my parents, there are, there are people around me that, that could have maybe saw this coming. I wasn't clearly not in the right mind. I was not in control. Of, I was in control of my actions. But I was 13. I think it's a powerful reminder to not only have empathy, which we kind of talked about in the beginning, but also to just be in a state of mind where we are paying attention to those around us and the signals that they are projecting that we might be absorbing. And I think that's a really important lesson for all of us to learn. Well, Clayton, again, as always, such a pleasure to talk with you. And I want to thank you for being willing to share your story with us. And we look forward to hearing your presentation in a few weeks. Our next guest is the remarkable and dare I say fan favorite in the world of school safety, Dr. Melissa Reeves, a school psychologist, associate professor at Winthrop University and past president of the National Association of School Psychologists. During our Return to Learn series, Dr. Reeves' presentation was one of our most popular webinars. It was on social emotional learning during the pandemic. Here is a clip from that presentation. One of the things, you know, when we look at kind of where we are today is the impact that COVID-19 and also some of the other dynamics going on within our country right now have had not only on the students that we serve, but also us as professionals and parents. So some of the latest research has been showing that one third of Americans are now showing signs of anxiety, depression, or both since the pandemic began. Dr. Reeves, thank you so much for being here. Thanks you for having me. I had mentioned earlier that you had presented a webinar for our Return to Learn series, and it was incredible. And we heard back from so many attendees who kept asking, can we have more from her? So here we are bringing you back for more as promised. Now in your webinar, you talked about social emotional learning during the pandemic. 
I know you'll be talking more about social emotional learning at the summit. So what should attendees plan to learn from that session on SEL? What we're going to learn about, first of all, is just how critically important it's going to be for schools not only to address the academic instruction this year, but we really are going to have to address the social emotional learning that is also um, taking place this year. You know, as I mentioned earlier in my other presentation, there is no doubt the impact that this has had on everybody's mental health. Anything from the students and the youth that we serve to our teachers and our educators and our support staff to administration and then also to parents. So what we're going to be learning is the, not only the importance of social emotional learning, but we're also going to be uh, reviewing how to identify if individuals are just more stressed by this or if they have actually been traumatized by this. And then what are some specific interventions that we can do, both at the universal school-wide level, but also what are some interventions that we can do with individual and smaller groups of students if needed? And then also what are those things that we can do for the adults? So what we refer to as the caregivers, which would be our educators and our parents. What are some ways that not only we can help them help their students and their children, but also the importance of really helping ourselves. And one of the most important things that we're realizing through all of this is that there is no way that we can humanly do everything that needs to be done in regards to physical and psychological safety. But there is a lot we can do. But what is gonna really be needed to make that happen is the collaboration and really working together. We really need to prioritize those relationships and those human connections because what we know through resiliency research is quite honestly, it's not so much about which curriculum or which program or which specific therapeutic interventions you do. It really is about those social supports and those relationships and those human connections. So if we can foster that in schools, then that is gonna help the academic instruction take place. So we're gonna cover a lot in a short amount of time, but hopefully <laughs> people will walk away with some nuts and bolts of just what do we really need to prioritize on first um, in order to really um, you know, continue to enhance the academic learning, but also the social emotional learning of those in our schools. You know, so much of this landscape has changed drastically in the last six months. And one of those areas are threat assessments. You know, how do you even go about doing a threat assessment when your kids or your students are solely online or on a hybrid model, mm -hmm. you know, or they've been in just an extreme situation being away from school and now we're coming back like there's a, a completely different methodology behind how you have to tackle that. And I know that you're going to be um, addressing in the summit. Can you tell us a little bit more about what attendees will learn about that specifically? Yeah, what we're really gonna be focusing on is how do you conduct threat assessments in the virtual environment? And it can be done. The process itself doesn't significantly change. It's just the method for which you go about gathering the data that needs to be analyzed to help determine a threat. The way we go about collecting that data, obviously, is going to look a little bit different. Um, but this is really such a critical topic because just in the last three weeks, there have been news stories of a couple students getting suspended 
for brandishing toy guns in the middle of a virtual lesson. Um, or someone having a BB gun on the wall that they had learned to shoot when they were in Boy Scouts. Um, and automatically, boom, they're being suspended or there's punitive consequences without a threat assessment e even being conducted or it being handled through the threat assessment screening process. And we wanna make sure that those kinds of situations are avoided. That, you know, if there truly is, you know, uh, if it really is an innocent situation that is taking place, there's ways that we can manage that through problem solving. However, if there is a significant safety concern that comes forward through the virtual instructional environment, then we need to make sure that we have a process in place for managing that also. But now more than ever, you know, we, we want to make sure that we don't stop the attention on the threat assessment process because that process is still needed. Actually, now more than ever, given the accumulation of stressors that everybody has been under over the past months, but the way for which we go about doing it just needs to be tweaked a little. So we're gonna be talking specifically about how to do threat assessments in the virtual environment. Thank you so much, Dr. Reeves. As always, it's been a pleasure and we look forward to hearing more from you at our summit. You are so welcome and we'll see you at the summit. Our last speaker, Molly Hutchins, connects in many ways to Clayton's story, except the roles are reversed. Molly, a school counselor at a middle school in Pleasant View, Tennessee, had an eighth grader request to see her in her office. Here is a clip of Molly telling her story. About five minutes into this conversation, I noticed that the hair on the back of my neck is starting to stand up, and I feel like somebody has taken something warm and poured it on top of my head, and it's like running down my body. And I remember thinking, you are not going to faint. And I thought, what is wrong with me? Like, my heart was pounding, and you know, I mentioned I was very into running at the time, and even when I ran, my heart didn't be like that. My pulse was pounding in my ears, and all of a sudden, I just had this thought, he's got a gun. And the second I thought that, immediately I started thinking about what am I going to do? I am sitting in a room with one exit. It's behind him. And so I'm trying to breathe and think, you know, be calm and meet him where he is. All these things that we, you know, we practice or we try to. And then I remember just kind of looking at him and he seemed lost. And even though I was terrified, I still thought, just stay present. Try to stay present. And he unzipped his coat and he stuck his hand inside and he started tapping on something. And then he said, well, actually, I bet you've never anybody tell you they had a loaded gun in school before. Wow. Molly, I mean, what an experience. We are so grateful that you are here today with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Alyssa. I'm so excited to be part of the Safe and Sound School Summit and to share about my experience with all of those who are attending. Hey, thank you. I mean, honestly, your story is quite remarkable. And I guess for me, you know, I had envisioned so many ways in which I could have intercepted our shooter before he entered into the halls of Sandy Hook. And I remember looking back and knowing the details of his movements that day. It was easy in hindsight for me to create these scenarios in which I could have, you know, stopped him or gotten to the school and, you know, intercepted him before he went in. But if I'm being honest with myself, 
I don't really know how I would have responded. And I guess for you, had you thought through, you know, an active shooter scenario before? And if so, what, you know, made you do that? Well, yes, you know, actually I had um, my first year of teaching was in 1999. And I remember vividly the school shooting that occurred at Columbine High School in Colorado. And for reasons I didn't understand at the time, um, I became very interested in researching and learning about school shootings after that, not because of, I think, a lot of the details the public was interested in, but because I wanted to try to understand how two boys could plan something of that magnitude over a year's time and nobody know anything about that. I, I felt like there had to have been some type of, of warning signs. And so and that was in 1999. So I spent the next 10 years researching school shootings, trying to read only things that were written by psychiatrists and psychologists, mental health workers, law enforcement, people directly affected by these cases. And I created a training that I traveled and, and just taught really mostly to school counselors and assistant principals and juvenile uh, court officers. And I learned um, so much about uh, the minds of, for the most case, violent teenage boys and how that progresses over time. And so I took that back to my own school and we created a crisis plan uh, in 1999. We were the first one in our county to have one. Uh, most people thought a crisis plan was about tornadoes and fire drills. Right. Um, for me, I spent, I guess, almost the next, you know, almost 10 years after that, just working in my school. I, I had been in our school for, um, right at 18 years when this incident happened. So I'd had an opportunity to have thousands of conversations with kids. And there were signs, there were things that I had recognized in, in the um, perpetrators that I had studied that would raise a red flag for me. And so I feel like leading up to that day, I just, um, there were certain things that if I heard about children doing or things that would bo were bothering me that I would then try to really make sure I connected with that kid. Um, but I also said about trying to train our students how to recognize if, if other students were struggling. And I would say to them, you know, you, um, there may be someone that's struggling who does not feel like they have the courage to reach out for help. And you may know about that. And if you do, you need to be brave enough to stand in the gap. And I even said to them, at some point, you might be that person who needs help. And there may be no one there, but you still need to be brave enough to reach out. And I remember the day before our incidents, I did a lesson with our, our a classroom guidance lesson and the student was in that class. And I talked about how every life matters, every life makes a difference, and how even one person can change the course of events that are gonna take place if they're willing to step forward. Little did I know that this child was in that class and was struggling. Um, I had met with him the week before, ironically, because another student came to me and said, Miss Hudgens, I've got this friend I'm kind of worried about, you know, do you think maybe you would meet with him? So my initial uh, interaction with this child was not of his own doing or even of, of my recognition. It was because there was another child who realized, hey, I think my friend has got something going on that I need to talk to an adult about in the building. So um, I had a chance to talk to this young man the week before our incident for about 45 minutes. And I, I believe entirely that it was that connection mm. and that opportunity for him to really share what was going on in his life that, that helped us achieve the, the um, positive outcome we had the following week. You know, and going through a traumatic 
um, event often changes the lens that you see the world through. And I know for the summit, you have been busy creating a truly unique presentation that you've never done before. Right. And are those lessons that you learned through your experience your personal experience, how do you feel like those could help struggling communities right now? That's a great question. I think right now when we have, uh, you know, as a country, as a world, we've gone through this pandemic and we are coming back to school. Our school this year started back on a hybrid model where we have about half the school in the building, um, three, uh, two, two days a week and the other half, you know, the other two days of the week with them being at home for at least one day of the week. And so with that kind of setting, it's given us a chance to see more students. There are more available to us because there are fewer people in the building. We can really connect with them. But one of the wonderful things that it has done for mental health is it has given the world as a whole the opportunity to say, hey, we really need to focus on some of these issues that are going on. Um, data in our schools, testing, those things are always going to have their place. They're always going to be significant. But really, we have to look at the brain health of our students. We have to really focus on what is going on there. Do, are we meeting those needs? Because if, if we're not meeting those emotional and social needs, then we're going to see more and more issues arise. And it's very difficult for them to learn if those needs aren't being met as a priority. Um, much like having shelter and food and water, they need to be able to express themselves when they're feeling frustrated. They need to be able to have someone to walk them through things. And I would say that to schools, uh, it's, it's crucial that you allow your counselors and therapists and any of your mental health staff to have access to students. And it's so difficult right now when we're trying to do virtual learning and, and so many of the lessons are being recorded. Uh, sometimes I think it's difficult for teachers to, to feel that they can let students leave the room or come and meet with someone, but it is so important that we do that. And that we as counselors and therapists also make sure that the students who are at home learning virtually still have the opportunity to meet with or talk to someone as they need to. So we're taking counseling to a whole new level. Um, <laughs> when we talk about counseling kids via the internet and uh, it, no, maybe it hasn't necessarily been done very much before, but it can be done. And it's still a way for us to be part of their lives, even if they're not on our campuses. Lots of great points there and a lot we're going to have to digest and take in. Luckily, we're going to hear from you again and be able to take even more notes as we learn from you in a few weeks when we see you again. I want to thank Clayton and Dr. Reeves and Molly for being on our show today. Our students have gone through a lot and continue to navigate a really unique situation that has a lot of challenges. So if there's one takeaway I want you to have from today's episode, it's one of hope, which if I'm being honest is something I think we could all use right about now. I'm so excited for our summit next month and as a listener to our podcast, I have a special gift for you. We have a special promotion code for listeners of The Sound Off that brings the registration price down to only $99. That's right, you heard me, only $99. Visit our website at safeandsoundschools.org and use the promotion code SOUNDOFF2020. That's SOUNDOFF2020 with no spaces or hyphens, all one word. Use it at checkout and receive your discount. This event is truly gonna be something that you don't wanna miss.